internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz. And uh, you know what? Now we are live in person, at least the two of us are in person with one another, to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, you're here. I'm here. I'm finally here. We we made an announcement about it a few episodes ago. We talked about it on Twitter. But I have moved to Asheville, North Carolina, out of the sulfurous, uh, sulfurous hellscape that is Florida. Like, you didn't come, like, just to be here with me. No, um, it's a bonus, though. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, sweetie, I'm so glad you're out of Florida. I'm, <laughs> I'm so fucking glad you're out of Florida. Oh my God. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so, so glad I belong in the mountains, and now I'm finally back amongst them. Mm-hmm. And conveniently, yes, now we can do this across the kitchen table from each other and not uh, across 800 miles. I mean, yeah, but, like, you live five minutes down the road. Guys, Andy's going to live five Like, okay, let's be clear. The last few weeks, um, you have been crashing with us yes. here at our place because your apartment's not ready yet. Like, it's not like you're homeless or anything. But um, you will be moving into an apartment, like, five minutes away, so... We're just going to be like, I'm going to eat a lot of your food, aren't I? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like what's going to happen. And I'm going to play with your snake. That's not a, that, that's not a euphemism. Like, I literally am going to play with Andy's snake. Yes. And Please. I'm going to walk your dog, which I'll let the listeners decide if that's a euphemism or not. Uh, oh, man, why are so many innuendos surrounded around Andy? Uh, okay, never mind. Uh, the point is, Andy's snake is to his right right now. My dog is to my left right now. And uh, they... You know what? I think it's good that they haven't met. No, I don't really need them to meet. They can just peacefully ignore each other's existence, and I think it's going to be just fine. Indeed, but you live here now. Um, we, you know, you, you okay? You tell me this. Let's 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 get into this. You know, live on the pod. You've been crashing with us for a couple of weeks now. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of my lifestyle, Andy? <laughs> I think it suits you very, very well, and um, it suits you very, very well. <laughs> You said to me the other day, because you've been, you know, guys, Andy is an incredibly sweet person to have stay with you. He um, helps out around the house. He has helped walk Nico. He cleans up really well. He's taken out garbage. And you turned to me the other day and was just like, how do you do this without help? Yeah, how? that was my biggest question is just like, how do you, your days are packed. I mean, it's. Just kind of, it's what a, uh, I, I don't know. I I spend my Fridays cleaning mostly and because yeah. I'm not at work. And the rest of the time, I'm just like, okay, Nico needs a walk. I'll give him a walk. Okay, the kitchen needs cleaning after cooking. Like, going to do that. I, I don't know. It, it I feel like it's white noise, you know. it's or, or, you know, it's the whole David Foster Wallace thing. Like, does the fish know what water is? <laughs> Or is it just all it's ever known? I, I don't know. I Do I know what chores are? I mean, you certainly do. You certainly get through enough of them. I think the thing really is, is like, I've been known to luxuriate quite a bit. And you are just very good at staying on top of keeping your living space in a certain way and doing what needs to be done. And 
You've also been an amazing and wonderful host. Both you and Stephanie have, have helped us feel really welcome, and it's been absolutely wonderful and not nearly as stressful as you might imagine. It, it hasn't been so much the, like, stereotypical sitcom, now they're roommates sequence. They were roommates. <laughs> no, it's not really a threes company kind of deal. Well, because uh, there's four of us for one thing. I mean, yeah, but, like, the landlord in threes company was, like, what was his name? Mr... I, feel, I swear to God, we had, like... We used him for a question. We used him for a question, and, like, I still don't remember... Okay, the point of this is, I am the Don Knotts of the group. Yes. I will take that. Yeah, you you can be you can be John Ritter. I, I will happily be John Ritter. Yeah. Okay, cool. Like, that's... I know Suzanne Summers and the fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if any of this is going to wake up in a bathtub, it's going to be me. Oh, so. oh. Oh, that's dark. That's... Eh. Eh. Uh. Anyway, we're excited for the bright new... This is going to be the last episode of 2021. And so 2022, moving forward, it's going to be nothing but like... We keep saying live, and it's not live. We're not streaming this on Twitch, although I have thought about it. It's going to be in-person recordings. Uh, oh, you know what? We could do a Twitch stream of us just answering relationship questions and drinking like we did on the couple of episodes ago. You know? File that away for later. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's there was an, there, I think I told you this. Um, I think I might have mentioned this on the episode that we did for him, but... Um, there have been these Adam Neely live streams where he's hung out with another musician named Ben Levin and they record an album in 24 hours. Like they write and record the whole thing Mm. and they live stream the whole thing. So the whole time people are like in, and it's all for charity. People donate money and they, you know, give it to Rises or some other charity. But it's literally just watching this 24-hour live stream with these two musicians. And they'll have other musicians come in. Like, they had a drummer pop Skype in to record some stuff after they had sent the tracks over. They had singers come over, mm-hmm. literally, to their apartment to record their parts. And they released these, like, eight-track albums, basically. And the whole challenge was a 24-hour live stream. We should not answer questions for 24 hours. That would be a bad choice. But I could do, like, two hours. I could do two hours. I mean, shit, listeners, if you provide the content, uh, we will absolutely do that for charity for like some worthy cause, or at the very least I will. Maybe we tag in and out. Maybe we take like shifts. Hmm. That seems like a bad choice because I feel like I should not be. I, I feel like if you have me on like a 30-minute shift, by the end of it, I'm going to be, you know, telling people to burn down their family reunions I mean, how's that different than any other episode? Speaking of any other episode, thank you and welcome to Love-Hate Relationship uh, proper. Every episode we take a little bit of time and just shoot the shit and have a little bit of a douchebag buffer. And you have beaten that. Congratulations, dear internet friend. And so now we're moving on to what we do every episode where one of us talks about something we love, the other one talks about something we hate. And then we take your or the internet's perfect internet relationship questions and give our perfectly unqualified advice for them yup so um andy i feel like i'm shaking off a little bit of rust but you know coming back to this strong and i have the love for this episode you too so i always like to you know start these off with a question for you and this one's going to be very you know back to basics straightforward 
Andy, I want you to talk to me about your experiences, either current or in your childhood, mm -hmm. of 16-bit video games. Sure. So, unlike most people, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this, the very first video game console I ever played was the Sega Genesis. 16-bit? And I never, I, I never had a SNES in my home. I wasn't a Nintendo kid until the N64 came out, which admittedly was still like kindergarten. But I played a shit ton of Sega Genesis games. So a lot of Sonic, mm. a lot of Aladdin and mm. like Mickey Mouse games. Uh, there's one that I am desperately trying to remember it was like kid commando or something it was this kid who ran around with different power-up masks it was basically like ben 10 only nightmarishly hard and horrifying new kid chameleon the multiple personality game only on sega genesis um and so that is where i got a lot of my like first literal infancy video game experiences mm -hmm. and it has a special place in my heart you know a, a friend of mine did have an snes and so that's how i first started playing you know the mario games and you pull out a game boy color and all of a sudden you're playing donkey kong and pokemon and all of that and i feel like even as technology has surpassed 16 and 8-bit that style of game has always still managed to stay in my life in one way or another. I love that. And I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So I think I've probably talked about this on the show before, but I inherited my older sister's Super Nintendo. Mm. Uh, and that kind of was my go-to by and large. I also inherited her Game Boy at the same time. My sister kind of gifted me all of her video game stuff for I think my eighth or ninth birthday. And it's funny because the gift, the one gift that I asked for from my parents was a copy of the first gen Pokemon game, mm. which I got. I got a red version. There you go. Um, and so I had my sister's, that big fat gray Game Boy, uh, along with all the games she had. And then I got her Super Nintendo and the games that she had for that. And that was really my video game life for a while. A number of years later, I got a PlayStation, later got an N64, and then a GameCube and, and all of this. But I always had that Super Nintendo. And I appreciate you mentioning specifically that that is, still has a place in your life today. I gotta ask you real quick. So, how, about how old was your sister? Is the first part of that question. Second part is: Did she continue playing any sorts of video games? Uh, to, how old was she when she got the games, or how when old she, she gave, when she gave them all of her gaming systems to you? Uh, let's see. That was probably my seventh or eighth birthday. So she would have been twelve or thirteen. Okay. Uh, and. Not really, no. Like, she never really played any uh, later consoles. I I don't know if she played, like... I, I, like, okay, um, she's married now, and her husband very much has... You know, he's got an Xbox. He very much enjoys uh, video gaming in his man cave. I don't know if she's ever participated in any of that with him. 
Um, and I don't know if she did any of that in like college. I, I know she wasn't exactly like going to land parties or anything. It's just interesting to me that like very almost the exact same time in your own life by your own admission, you just kind of dropped off of video games as well. So there's just just an interesting parallel with you and your sister. That is, you know what? I hadn't ever thought about that. Yeah, I, I gave up all my video games when I was 15. Looks like she gave up all of hers when she was 12 or 13. And I, I think, honestly, for her, it just... She was more interested in sports and hanging out with her friends and mm. maybe dudes and maybe other shit. I, I don't know. But Fair enough. Yeah. Like, admittedly, she was always much sportier than me. So, and around that time, I remember she got really into basketball. So, mm. maybe just like I took to musical instruments, she took to sports, and that just kind of became the world post-video game. I, there, there's something I kind of love about that and the idea of finding a, another hobby. But this seems counterproductive to what we actually want to talk to today. So thank you for answering my question. Please go on. Oh, no, you're good. And I, you know, I think there is something to that that we can possibly come back to in the course of this discussion. My topic for this episode, my love for this segment, is very specifically 16-bit video games. Mm -hmm. So um, to kind of give a little bit of very super brief history, um, especially for folks who... there. I, I know that there is a segment of our audience that is very well-versed in video games in general, infinitely more so than I am. Sure. You, you definitely speak to that crowd pretty, you know, often enough in our episodes. Um, but then there are folks who just, you know, don't know any of this. So looking it up, the 16... The quote-unquote 16-bit era is actually... Um, known often as the fourth generation of game consoles. And it really started in the late 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, now, obviously, that's less so in the U.S. Really, your earliest 16-bit consoles were um, like the NEC Home Electronics PC engines, which, you know, in North America was called the TurboGrafx-16. If you've never heard of that, it probably means that, like, you had friends in the late 80s, if you were alive at all. Um, I was born in 89, so, meh. But the way that we kind of understand that period now are games like the Super Nintendo Entertainment yep. System, the uh, Sega Genesis, which was called the Sega Mega Drive in, in Japan, um... And of course, your Game Boys. You know, the game, the original big fat ass Game Boy came out in 1989. Um, I kick myself for throwing it away. But when my sister gave me her Game Boy, she also had the original box it came in. Ooh. And that, and, and you know, it, it also came with a copy of um, Link's Awakening. Okay. Like that. And, and my sister never liked that game. Like, I fell in love with that game after playing it, but I remember after she gave it to me, I remember asking her about it. She was like, yeah, I never really played that. Like, I had it. It came with the Game Boy. I didn't like it, though. I didn't like Zelda games. She was more of a Tetris, Mario type of person. Um, but yeah, I wish I still had that box. But yeah, those... And that... And, and then, you know, Game Boy, Game Boy, Game Boy Pocket, Game Boy Color, all of those were the 16-bit processors. So... That fourth generation of 
video games kind of marked in there from the late 80s up until about the mid 90s maybe also almost into the late 90s because even after the n64 came out and i think that's 96 the super nintendo and the sega genesis were still making games still fairly popular and even the game boy like until the Game Boy, like, like the dual screens came out, yeah. like Game Boy had a good probably eighteen year run. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I don't know if this is a point you wanted to get into later or if I'm just cutting ahead here, but I would make the argument that sixteen bit still to this day in 2021 has a strong and viable corner of the video game market, mostly indie games because it's become a, a stylistic choice rather than a hardware necessity. But, you know, 16-bit games, some of the best games of the past 10 years have been 16-bit games. I mean, yeah, I, I was going to talk about this probably a little bit later. And I don't know if it technically qualifies as 16-bit, but it definitely falls into the aesthetic of that. But a game that your wife actually introduced me to mm -hmm. uh, that I super enjoyed is called Undertale. Sure. Yeah. And we can talk about Undertale a little bit later, but like Undertale came out in 2016 and, you know, 16-bit graphics. It looks like something you can just play on a on an old school Game Boy. And I mean it's available for download on any PC, any anything like that, but those that there's something about that aesthetic. And this is kind of what I did want to get into. Um I have a theory about 16-bit games, mm -hmm. which is they really represent this great nexus point for video games Yeah, where they lack so many of the like really crappy limitations of a lot of the earlier games, but they still have an accessibility to them that you kind of lack once you get into standard 3D more contemporary style games. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, um, the most common like hallmarks of 16-bit games, though these are not necessarily, you know, standardized across the board, but you know, those are your cartridge games. You're saving files directly in there. Your controllers tend to be like the D-pad, the four pad, the four um, button directional pad, maybe mm -hmm. a few couple of side buttons and and some buttons on the right hand side to control actions usually four if you think very a lot of how i think of this is comparing a nintendo entertainment system to a super nintendo yeah the nintendo entertainment system two but two action buttons the d-pad like very basic and you know there were there were eight bit games that were fun like i liked the old mario game i liked it's not the best but the original zelda game is pretty okay those early mario games were okay um but something changed when it got up to 16 bits absolutely um and 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 it might seem materially not that important if you're not really if you didn't really grow up playing those games like the graphics are the most obvious difference the difference between an 8-bit graphics like i used to play 8-bit 
um, Nintendo games on my graphing calculator in high school when I was just like zoning out because I did that. Like you could get the original Super Mario, or you can get the original Mario Brothers game fucking downloaded on your yeah. graphing calculator. And I know because my uh, pre-calc teacher caught me playing it, gra- took my graphing calculator and deleted it in front of me. And that was a dick move. Um, and I still don't think highly of that man. Clearly. Um, <laughs> but it's something about that Nexus point, that 16-bit, where I think of the games of that era. I think of your Super Nintendos. I think of your, you know, Link to the Past, your Super Metroid, your Donkey Kong Country, um, your Sonic the Hedgehogs. Yeah. Like, when I had a GameCube, I bought the Sonic Mega Collection, which was just all the old, all, a bunch of the old Sonic games that had been on 16-bit processors. You know, the first four Sonic games plus Son- Sonic CD and I think a couple of others. And I played the shit out of those because they were wonderful. And and you were you were in the middle of making a point, and I think no, you're good, please. I think kind of got sidetracked. I want to tie that point back together. You mentioned graphics, yeah. And I think one of the keys to recognizing a 16-bit game is the graphics. And the thing I'm going to tell people for those of you who know what I'm about to reference, think about the original Mario Bros. game. Mm-hmm. Or um, the original Donkey Kong game or the original uh, Zelda game. And think about that versus Donkey Kong Country, A Link to the Past, Super Mario 3. All the first three games I mentioned, you look at the character, you look at what you're controlling, you look at enemies. And when you put it under scrutiny, it's really just a bunch of blobs Mm -hmm. and like skin is all a single color and then maybe there's like a dot for the character's eye and stuff like that then you go to a 16-bit game and the point graphically is literally you get double the pixels you Mm -hmm. get double the amount of artistic artifact to manipulate and so with that came an advent of being able to properly shade and put more detail and you can see the whites of your character's eyes and, and stuff like that. And it creates this really wonderful, comforting spot. There is something about older games where it just looks too old. But a 16-bit game, even if it is old, it still at least looks in a way where it's like, okay, this is intentional at least, and it's not getting in the way of my actual enjoyment of the game. Exactly. Um, you know, I've read the thing about how the original design of Mario for the original uh, Nintendo Entertainment System, like a lot of those design aesthetics were honestly just to make the character look like an actual human being. Right. Like the reason that Mario has a mustache and overalls is so that they could just not make him essentially wearing a big red jumpsuit and be a faceless. Yeah head which a lot of those 8-bit games that's what they looked like it was a lot of blobs it was cubert and the et monster and all this shit god the et monster but yeah like it's and and with 16-bit like you put that comparison across each other you put an 8-bit mario game or an 8-bit zelda game versus the 16-bit one and that character sprite is so much more brilliant and so much more just 
interesting visually you can graft onto it it doesn't it doesn't look like something that you're playing on your calculator which like andy were you were you old enough for nokia phones i got right in at the tail end i think uh my first phone was not a nokia phone it was a samsung but it was of that like final stylistic generation as yeah. a nokia phone yeah so that brick phone i don't necessarily know that it was an 8-bit game but i remember playing like snake on the nokia yeah. and i and even then like i'm a kid and i'm just holding my parents one cell phone because this was back when the family had a cell phone yeah and it was like okay daughter of mine you're going out with your friends take the cell phone like it's very bob's burgersy um but i remember sitting there just like playing snake on the phone and just going okay well this is obviously like this screen is designed to just show a phone number a name in very block lettering of course this is the only kind of game you can have on a phone screen like this my graphing calculator, the 8-bit thing, I'm sitting here going like, yeah, that's, that is absolutely the limitation here. With the 16-bit graphics, I, I don't know. There's, it's more artistic to me. Yeah. And something that I think is worth at least taking a second to talk about. Um, there is an entire genre of 8-bit music out there now. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there are people who just as as their musical form take 8-bit processors and do digital music. Mm -hmm. I don't see that with 16-bit. But when I have played 16-bit video games, you think about those sound effects. You think about that music. Like, I could take the various themes from your Super Mario World games or Metroid or anything like that or or the original Mario Karts even or Star Fox I could loop those and that could be study music for me because number one they're designed to be able to listen to endlessly and never get bored of right um which involves music theory that is well beyond my capabilities to to explain but it also just sounds better. It's not, they're not real instruments. None of them are real instruments. They're all still built on computers with MIDI and, and just processors, but it works. Like, it sounds like you're listening to percussion. It sounds like you're listening to horns. It sounds like the melodic structure of them and the way that they work. It just, it is the pinnacle of this thing that still is clearly made out of computers and processors, but it isn't like, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, the X-Men theme song from the 90s. Mm. That was done entirely on a keyboard. Right. That guitar, those drums, those, those synth pad, all of that was done on a MIDI keyboard. And that is done with technology that is advanced enough that you don't necessarily realize that. No one is going to be, you know, if anyone gives you shit about not necessarily knowing based on the sound of that theme song that it is done with computer, with, with a computer processor, like only a dick is going to give you shit about that. Mm. You hear the music in 16-bit games. I, I just mentioned Undertale. Like, the Undertale soundtrack is arguably an experience unto itself. And it is all clearly computer-based, but it is so 
musically dense and such an interesting pad to work with. And it is that Nexus point. N64 games, again, also made on computers, but they're more like that X-Men theme song. They're more of that, you're actually going to kind of fool me a little bit. Or you could fool a layman. Well, and this turn Nexus point is so fascinating for me. And talking about the accessibility... You know, I, I, I was going to go on ahead and mention, you know, compare 16-bit graphics to first-generation 3D graphics, your N64, your PlayStation, that that blocky, horrible, sharp-looking thing that looks so much more dated and inferior now than 16-bit. But we don't even have to go back into discussing graphics. It is across the board. There is, like, 16-bit is the pinnacle of what you could do at the same time being the perfect baseline for what you could create as a creator both from a game design standpoint from an artistic standpoint from a music standpoint Um, you know it is so much harder to learn anything about 3d rendering and if you're going to do that like you are putting yourself on the path to become like a modern day next gen video game creator yeah but you don't have to do that to create something compelling and amazing you can instead dive into going into that 16-bit graphical style and it's easier to create something that looks better than the harder, worse-looking 3D graphic thing. The same goes for music, you know? It's not teaching yourself an entire, like, array of musical skills and instrumental skills and music theory. It's sitting down with a MIDI keyboard. Or uh, I've seen... I I follow a couple of TikTok channels where it's nothing but people taking a, a Mega Man soundtrack processor and just playing different songs in that 8-bit style and you can do that and there is something so awesome about being able to just like it's not easy you have to devote yourself but you can do it and you can do something amazing with it exactly and i just i i really did enjoy the the things that followed 16 bits like i i really liked my n64 there were a lot of n64 games that i super enjoyed sega dreamcast that was a solid console i enjoyed the gamecube i got the p i got a ps1 i played a bunch of ps2 when it was out and around that time was when i did fall off Mm -hmm. um with that generation of just like the gamecube and the ps2 and the first xbox and really i think about those games and and i liked a lot of them but they don't necessarily stick out in my head with quite as much like there there are a few games from that from that generation that i do genuinely remember and if i could like download them in some way or or be able to access them i probably would that would would be a lot of fun but when i got a work iphone where i was sitting here going like okay well i don't i i need this to be able to store phone numbers for you know my contacts but um for for the job but other than that the smartphone capabilities i'm not really using i went ahead and downloaded the original sonic the hedgehog on it and played the shit out of that on the phone and that's small enough that it can fit on a phone right i have seen i have played emulations of the old pokemon games 
since you have been here staying with me, you brought your Switch with you. And you guys have a whole suite of Super Nintendo games. So I have almost beaten The Link to the Past for probably the eighth time in my life. And I just started a Super Mario World file. Like, and, and I'm going to do Kirby. And I'm going to probably play some Street Fighter at some point or some Mortal Kombat. And I have played, and it's funny, I think about all of those games. Mm-hmm. I have played later Mario games. Sure. I have played later uh, Metroid games. Uh, and I have played the later Mortal Kombat games. And all of those were great, wonderful, awesome. But there is something about this period of time, this access point, that was better infinitely than what came before and i think about the stuff that followed and i don't necessarily know that it's better yeah i mean if you want to dig and poke you can absolutely find better more recent offerings but the fact of the matter is it wasn't a straight upward facing line you could make a legitimate argument that a link to the past is as good if not better than ocarina of time you could make an argument that, uh, and I would make an argument that Super Mario World 3 is better than um, Super Mario World 64. You know, there's this, it, it is just such a good spot. And, and honestly, I kind of wonder how much of this is responsible for and how much of this is because of just the general trend of 80s nostalgia that is like permeating society over the past decade or so oh we're moving into 90s nostalgia now so we we are primed for this shit yeah we absolutely are um but it's just it is this this just it's it's almost like the baby beds bear is too small papa beds bear is too big mama beds bear is just right Mm. grandpa's uh game console which is an atari 2600 is too old yeah your kid's video game console, which is playing Fortnite on their cell phone, is too hard and too complex. Mm. But crank up an SNES emulator, and it is just right. It is perfect. I I love it so. Like I don't think I would ever get a Switch. I truly don't think I ever would. But I have had a Super Nintendo, like the Super Nintendo Classic, on my Christmas list for like three or four years now and i'm never gonna get it because it's two hundred dollars and honestly i could just i could honestly for that like i could easily get those games for way less like even free if i were you know gonna be illegal about it um but it just i I just wanted to talk about it here because i was looking for a topic that for a love and i'm and i've honestly been swimming in hate topics as of late um but i rediscovered a little bit just with you staying here something that i rediscover every you know certain number of years which is just how much i enjoy this specific period of video games i am not a video gamer i haven't been for a very long time and i haven't been because current video games have exhausted me they're too expensive they're too unwieldy they're too difficult in ways that i don't care about sure whereas anyone who has ever played the lion king on this on the sega genesis will know what it is to play an incredibly difficult game and just want to keep playing it yeah and i wanted to highlight that period here so if you are someone who grew up with this kind of thing 
you know what, look into some of the old emulators, look into some of the legal ways to experience some of these things. And if you are someone who enjoys latter-day video games and maybe you're a little bit younger and you don't really have that background, I encourage you, check out some of those old, you know, if you have a Switch, download that Super Nintendo thing. If you, if you have the ability to get any of those old Sega games, please feel free. Hell, I can walk into uh, my local used bookstore and they sell a bunch of those old consoles and they are cheap as hell. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and you can just pick up, you know, if you have, you know, 50 to 100 bucks to drop, you could probably get a fair amount of entertainment just hooking up something like that. And it's not necessary. it doesn't have to be out of nostalgia. In a lot of ways, I can kind of just equate this to as simple as enjoying music made with just a handful of instruments live in front of me. There's something about the simplicity of guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. Mm -hmm. There's something beautiful to the simplicity of 16-bit music or 16-bit video games. And I think that, you know, what? I like your Goldilocks analogy there. Like, it is just right for me. So I wanted to highlight that for this, our last episode of 2021. Thank you for indulging me. Thank you, man. That was wonderful and nostalgic and gave me an idea for a Christmas gift for you. So party. Oh, shit. (laughs) Uh, It's also nice to hear you happy, especially when you sit here and go, I'm drowning in hates. Yeah. Speaking of hates. (laughs) Uh, Talk to me. Uh, So, listeners, we've talked about it ad nauseum now. I moved very recently, especially at time of recording. You did. Um, And that was every bit of a bitch and a half process as people talk about moving can being. And so, you know, I just thought, you know, let me keep it topical. Let me talk about what's on top of my mind. I want to talk about the things I hate about moving. Right. And uh, to be clear, listeners, uh, as Andy was doing all this moving stuff, I am getting updates all along the way because at the conclusion of this whole journey, you and Mariah ended up on our doorstep on Halloween and you poor babies at the end of all of this so please feel free to vent away as you just as you just need to get everything off your chest yeah i'll I'll vent and i'll also just go ahead and and just make it plain and clear a lot of stuff i'm talking about is stuff that's perfectly avoidable but i would say part of the problem is it's something you have to have the wherewithal to know how to avoid um you were getting updates because, you know, we had a plan that we were going to stay here for a while. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we were giving you updates because it was a plan that we were going to come and stay here. We didn't just go knock, knock, knock. Hey, guys, surprise. Yeah. No, it was, it was a pre-established thing. But in and of that, like, I, I just want to get into it. That kind of leads me to one of the first things for the millennial moving experience it is damn near impossible to do it without some sort of aid from friends. Indeed. Um, and you were going across multiple states. And we were going across multiple states. You know, I've moved several times in my life, more than some, less than some others. I've probably moved six or seven times in my life. Um, a bunch of those were with my family. And with my family, the process was always, okay, we're going to hire a moving company and let them deal with it. Great. I've also done the thing where, you know, moving out of my parents' home into my original apartment, 
I gathered a bunch of my friends who were in the state and we filled up a U-Haul and we dragged couches and a bed and bookshelves up three flights of stairs. And I was able to have friends help me do that. Mm -hmm. I have also, uh, you know, decided two homes ago that I was just going to hire a moving company. Hiring a moving company gets away from the, like, having to ask and bribe your friends with pizza. Mm Mm-hmm. But it leads to so many other issues. I have used two moving companies myself to move me and my wife's home. And neither time was really perfect. The first time it was just moving stuff up the street. And the movers still managed to like break bedside tables and like not handle stuff as well as I wanted to. But okay, whatever. You know what? Thank you for moving my house. And then that led me to this most recent time where I was moving multiple states and leaving most of my home in storage for a month and that has been an absolute goddamn nightmare experience uh-huh. welcome to my nightmare i think you're gonna like it I- you know i i wanted to avoid having friends come do this and and bribing them with pizza and beer i also was in no way going to move my entire house myself i lived on a third story apartment and Mm -hmm. i was going to die if i had to do that pandemic was also a factor pandemic was also a factor um so you know i i reach out i get a moving company and i get a quote and the process of getting a quote is so strange to me this concept of like having to bid out a necess a, a necessary project on myself hearing a guy hearing a guy tell me okay it's going to be this much oh my god you're getting such a great deal oh hey this is such a great deal let me know i tell him okay i will call you back i will talk about this with the people who like my wife who you know whose decisions matter <laughs> Get another call three seconds later from somebody who says they're from a different company offering to do the same amount of work for like twice the price. So I'm sitting here going, oh, that first one really was a great deal. Talking to my wife, make a decision, make an educated decision to the best of my ability, sign a contract with a moving company, and then comes the big day and all that shit goes out the window. (laughs) I was quoted a price... And dear listeners, I I will call them out by name. I worked with the Interstate Moving and Relocation Interstate Moving and Relocation Group. I was quoted a price, and then my price doubled by the uh, by the time it was all said and done. Mm. People show up the day of. They take one look at the boxes and the couches, and they go, "Oh, well, this isn't going to be." what they told you it was. I don't know why they said that. This is a lot more stuff. And you're, you're, this is the core problem. Any, any specific thing I can talk about, this is the core problem. You, the mover, are left with being in a position where you have something that needs to get done. Something that you have committed to hiring other people to do. And then you have to compromise. And then you have to fight with these people on every little detail. And at the end of the day you have to acquiesce to any changes they make, especially to cost, because what are you going to do? 
Mm-hmm. And the moving company knows that. That is their thing. What are you going to do? Yeah. You, you had need to, to be, move. You had to be out of your place by like, I think, what was it, two days later because yeah. they came a day early? Yeah. Or something like that? Yeah. I mean, goddamn. That's the other thing is uh, I, I was straight up tricked into, hey, you need to give like a multi day window, give either like friday or saturday i sit here and go okay it needs to be saturday and i'm told by somebody okay it will be saturday but you need to put down friday but i promise you it's going to be saturday wink and little did i know was the wink over the phone was him flipping me the bird (laughs) because the movers came when was most convenient for them which was the friday not the saturday so my i wound up moving an entire 24 hours earlier Mm mm-hmm and then within the concept of we're coming a day early. Weren't they still late? They were late. <laughs> they were like eight hours late. <laughs> they were a not insubstantial amount of time late. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but if it, if it weren't you, it'd be really funny. But like, yeah. it's you, so it's only a little funny. <laughs> I was about to say, clearly it's still pretty funny. <laughs> And like, God, you know, I, I want to try and balance pros and cons. The pros is the the pro is I didn't have to move two giant couches down two flights of stairs essentially by myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to walk literal miles of staircase up and down and up and down. Yeah, but I paid the goddamn price for that. It's and your position was really extra shitty because um, you know you have a place lined up here in Asheville y'all signed a lease for it what like okay at time of recording right now we are in mid-November you move into your place a couple days before Thanksgiving yeah so as of the time that this episode releases you'll have been in your place for almost a month that said your lease was up at your old place at the end of October you were come, gonna come and crash with us for a few weeks, but it's it's you and you guys planned your jobs like yeah. leaving your old jobs with this idea, and it's again, it's not like you could have afforded to just say okay, well, cancel everything because your shit still needed to get here and be stored for three weeks because you y'all y'all came up on our doorstep with a couple of loaded up cars you brought a snake you brought a couple of suitcases yeah um a handful of shit that you just of boxes of shit that you didn't want the movers taking because it was fragile and that's all just sitting in the closet of our guest room right now. Our very, now very, very full closet. We didn't have room for your couches and for everything else, let alone doing it for three weeks. And the ability to put a bunch of stuff in storage was a tactical decision. Like, it was part of the reason I went with the company I went with is I was told, oh, okay, I can keep it in storage for three weeks. Well, that's a necessity. You know, early in the moving process, I kind of weighed the idea of, okay, do I rent a U-Haul and do I rent a storage facility and do I find movers without using their truck, which I know is going to cost more because it's less incentivized work for the company. Do I want to do all this or do I just want to go to a place that tells me they're going to be a one-stop shop? And it was a one-stop shop, but it just wound up being 
a much greater amount of money than I planned. And I am so lucky because I could take that hit and I planned like in a worst case scenario to be able to completely like get screwed over like I was as a just in case sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The thing I truly hate, I'm not just coming on here to bitch about my own personal experience. The thing I truly hate is that this is standard policy with, if not the great majority of moving companies, at least enough of them that, you know, th this happens to hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah. And theoretically, you know, the, the official line response here, because I did look into this for you, would have been something like taking the moving company to court over breach of contract, which is a small claims court case. Here's the problem. You would have to do that You'd have to do a filing in small claims court in Florida. You'd have a court date three to four weeks later in Florida. That could or could not be pushed back or changed the date of depending on what the lawyers for that company do. Yeah. And you're in North Carolina right now. And let's say you had a you you know you've got a job lined up here. Are you going to travel down to Florida to go do a court case in small claims court and then find out literally morning of that the lawyers have filed an appeal to have the date changed? Or what are you going to do? Come back to North Carolina and come back down a month later? Yeah, it's it's really at the point where it is literally not worthwhile for you to get justice on this thing, you will just fuck yourself more. Right. There have been few times in my life where I felt like the little guy being pushed around by the system. Mm -hmm. And this is absolutely one of the like worst. I've been, I'm, I've been on the phone with multiple people. Multiple people have told me, well, you signed the contract. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know what you want to happen now, but it's not going to be your preferred outcome. You know, I was told I was having a moving company come an entire 24 hours ahead of time. And there was nothing I could do other than pay it an extra fee to have them come like a week later, which was not going to be a viable option for me. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, it sucks. It sucks for so many people who like me get roped into this thing simply because they don't want to do it themselves and they don't want or or the people who can't do it themselves you know moving moving sucks in so many other ways even when it goes well the mad dash of packing to like get your home settled and get everything boxed up especially if you're a millennial and you are in a position where you are absolutely working a job until the very last moment because you frankly need the money i also sit here and i like the thing i think about here is like so there's a certain lens that um if you spend as much time in forums that critique capitalism as i do where um a lot of the flaws of these systems are very easy to notice if you just put them through the lens of what if a disabled person needed to deal with them. So sure, to yeah. it. So so to it. There is a certain type of um, 
let's just be honest, bootstrappy boomer who is going to hear this critique that you are giving the idea of like hiring a mover because you don't want to deal with it or you can't handle it or something like that and is going to say, well, that's your fault for, you know, going with a mover instead of doing it yourself or coordinating things or planning them better or what have you. Um, and that is, uh, frankly, horseshit because this exact same system exists and will screw over someone regardless of their circumstance. And there are people who, let's say there's someone who has a disability, is not able to do this kind of coordination, is not able to have that kind of community in, in, in present with them because they maybe have to live a somewhat more insular life due to accessibility issues. And that same exact person trying to do what you are doing, which is moving to a new place, has the economic feasance to be able to do that hiring and finds himself in this exact situation. That person is fucked. And to be clear, that person is fucked due to circumstances directly related to their disability. And if there is someone out there who says, yes, but that person's disabled, it's not their fault, you can kind of sit here and go, well, what's the difference? Yeah. Honestly, because you were trying to be responsible, move without involving a whole lot of people during a pandemic, use your you know economic capabilities in order to make that move happen as effectively as possible with the circumstances you had at hand, and you got fucked by that system that knows it is not going to see real consequences here and that is a critique of industry and you know what i'm gonna put i'm gonna put this out there because i'm always gonna have a capitalist a capitalism argument here if you are pro-capitalism this entire structure should piss you off yeah because the idea behind free market capitalism is with a competitive marketplace things like fair and reasonable service should be rewarded and things like fucking people over should be looked down upon to the point of the removal of that service that business should not exist in a free market system but it's taking advantage of the fact that these are people who are squeezed in dire straits and by the conclusion of everything don't have the money or wherewithal to go via market-based strategies or governmental strategies to fucking deal with the problem. So it's essentially taking advantage of people in shitty situations to have a very anti-market, anti-capitalist success. This should piss you off from that perspective, even if you don't agree with me. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I, 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 I love that. In, like inevitably the nemesis of love-hate relationship is old white men and the systems that they manipulate to screw other over other people and stay in power i'm going to close it down but i i think that was a very nuanced and good point um <laughs> it, dear listeners if you leave with nothing else never ever ever use the interstate moving and relocation group they will fuck you over bad and i mean like so real talk just if you're gonna be in a situation like this um maybe just prepare for the worst yeah 
like prepare to be charged, you know, two or three times what you originally intended to. If you give a window plan for that to, you know, fuck you over. If you see something in your contract that looks off, it is probably there to fuck you. Like, yeah. this might be a situation where being paranoid is really the best move. Just because you think they're coming to get you doesn't mean you're wrong. Yeah. It's, so. Yeah. <sighs> you want to move on to the question? Yes. All right. All right. So you gave the format, so I'll go ahead and read it. All right. And this came from our good friends at Relationship.txt on Twitter. Indeed. So. Uh, I'm not even going to bother with the title because the actual thing is uh, long enough. So, uh, the asker is a 25-year-old male, um, and the girlfriend in here, 27-year-old female, and the best friend is a 25-year-old male. Okay. I've been dating my girlfriend for almost two years, and I just moved into her place recently. She knew I was a little bi-curious. It's hard to explain because it wasn't like I wanted... uh, to or needed to try it, but more so like if the right situation arose, I'd explore it if that makes sense. Knowing this, she's been pushing for slash asking for a threesome with another guy for some time as it's been a fantasy of hers. Honestly, her pushing made me uncomfortable as it's not something that has interested me, but eventually she wore me down enough to agree if we found a guy I was okay with, then maybe we could. Never really thought we'd find a guy as the only ones I ever really considered were friends, most of whom are straight or completely gay. She just kind of kept at it, guy after guy, saying, what about him or him? Even asked about looking on apps, which I said no to. Finally, I said my best friend, thinking he's completely gay, would never agree to it. Plus, I wasn't going to ask him. First time after that talk, when he's over, uh, she just asked him, just flat out asked him. He laughed, thinking she was joking, but she kept asking and bringing it up. I just sort of stayed quiet, which he noticed, because he asked her to let him think about it then brought it up to me first chance when we were alone. He let me vent and explain everything to him, and he told me that it doesn't sound like I actually want to do it, so I shouldn't, but that if I did truly want to, he'd do it and stress that it's something I should only do if I actually want to. Well, I thought about it a lot and talked to her more about it, and she promised me that if we did it, uh, it would only be this one time and she'd drop it slash never bring it up again. So I agreed to make her happy, plus I figured it would be good to know for sure if it's something I even like. We told him and set up a night for it. He privately made sure I was truly on board. The night came and we had the threesome. It was different than I thought. I enjoyed being with him more than I think I've ever enjoyed being with any girl before, but not just the physical act, the after too. After she went to shower and we stayed in bed, Uh, which led to some cuddling. Him holding me, the only way I can describe it is it felt right. It felt like this is how it's supposed to be. Honestly, now I'm wondering if I'm gay or bi. Being with women was never bad. I enjoyed it, so I don't know how I could be... I don't know how I could be gay, but at the same time, it's never felt like that ever with any girl, so I don't know if I could be bi either. I can't stop thinking about it or him. I've always loved him, but now that I know what being with him uh, like that is like, I think I might be in love with him. I feel lost and don't know what to do. I don't want to hurt her or him, so please help me. Um, Goddamn. Yeah, whole lot to unpack there. So let's... Start with a name. 
I've um, got an idea. I've also got an idea. Let me hear yours first. So this sounds very much like a Skins plot line to me. Okay. Um, and in season one of Skins, there is, in fact, a love triangle that relates pretty well to this. I'm trying to remember last one's uh, name. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this... This reminds me of Maxie, Tony, and Michelle from Skins. But who, you, who do you got? Uh, I'm thinking of Joe Pitt from Angels in America. Oh my god, that works better. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Oh, uh, at some point I'm going to make Angels in America a love on this show. He falls in love um, with Lewis, right? He falls in love with Lewis, um, however he is married to Harper. That's right, okay, perfect. I'm here for it. So we have Joe, Harper, and Lewis. I can't believe you're a Mormon. I can't believe I spent three weeks in bed with a Mormon. Morning. Now, the interesting thing here is that um, the best friend in this situation actually sounds like a pretty decent person, and Lewis is a piece of shit. But um, everyone, except for basically Pryor, is kind of a piece of shit in Angels in America. So... I think Belize holds it pretty well. Belize, actually, you know what? Belize, that's fair. But Belize also kind of has the magical Negro thing, so... That is true. Uh, anyway... Tony uh, Kushner's problematic, <laughs> but... <laughs> Not to get too terribly off track, I, I'm here for this. Okay, so we've got Joe Pitt, uh, and he's dealing with Lewis and Harper. I read, would you like to take the first stab at this? Yeah, and you kind of... you know, The very first thing is minor uh, critique on Harper for... Uh, pressuring her boyfriend into a sexual situation that it really doesn't seem that Joe ever wanted to be in. The use of the phrase wore down is mildly damning, in mm -hmm. my opinion. At the same time, props to Lewis in this situation for uh, respecting his best friend's boundaries and consent. And in, in the best possible way saying like hey i'm not gonna do this unless you're cool with it and letting joe decide to become cool with it so that's right off the bat um you know as far as joe's actual predicament you know sexuality is a wide and varied spectrum i think there is room for bisexuality in Joe's story but it also definitely sounds like he has developed a very specific connection with Lewis specifically um, you know it, it may be a situation where men in general would not leave Joe feeling this way but being with his best friend and being held by a person, regardless of gender, um, a person whom he is so close with left him feeling this way. I think there is room for that. Um, but at the end of the day, much like Joe Pitt did for Harper in the play, if I'm remembering right, our Joe needs to be up front and explain to Harper what they are feeling and have full transparency about the potentially changing sexual orientation going on within him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely communication is a good place to start there, Joe. Um, 
I'm gonna. I think there's a couple things to unpack here. The place I want to start is right at the end of your question, where you say that you think you're in love with your best friend. Um, I want to be clear, and, and you know, it's funny because there is actually a line in Angels in America where Joe says to Lewis that, you know, I, I think that I love you. And Lewis says to him, no, you don't. It's the gay virgin thing. I'm the first gay person, like I'm the first man that you've ever had any kind of relationship with. So you think that you're in love with me, but we haven't known each other long enough. We don't know each other well enough. Now, obviously, you know your best friend, but you haven't known him in this context. Sure. And there is a part, you should really try and divorce the idea that you are definitely in love with your best friend from the idea of your sexuality in general. I think Andy has a good instinct to kind of enter into that realm, and I'm going to just close that door and say, it is too soon to know if you are in love with your best friend. You sure. very clearly care about each other, and it could be that there is some form of, you know, potential relationship there. Who's to say? But um, starting with that, you're going to want to de-escalate that right away, because it's way too soon for that, and you're dealing with too many things at once. Uh, I also agree. Harper, not a good look for her. This whole pressuring into a sexual act to deal... Um, and that's something you should be aware of here. That is a worthwhile critique. And, you know, good on Lewis for, for checking in on you. Um, as to the question of your sexuality in general, there's... Um, it's funny, because I, uh, I think of two things in particular. Um, I don't know how familiar you are, Andy, or you, Joe, are with the story of George Michael, um, the singer. Uh, not especially me, at least. So, um, George Michael, believe it or not, did not realize that he was gay until after he was already famous. And he very like he he wrote wrote about this in his book and and talked about this in uh, his behind the music. Um, but he he kind of found that out in your exact same kind of scenario in a threesome with his with a female partner and a male partner. Um, and it was his first encounter with that, and he kind of had a moment of, oh, oh, I did not know this about myself. And he was already famous at that point, like he was, you know, well into his adulthood, and just, and he'd never had, you know, issues with his sexuality with women, but by his, you know, by later in life, and certainly for most of the rest of his life after that, he was pretty largely and almost exclusively with men. Mm -hmm. So that is a possibility. But the other thing to mention here, um, I, and I'm going to reference a book here. There's a writer, um, I think he writes for the New York Times, but he came out with a memoir, um, Charles Blow. Great Twitter follow. Um, but he has, a, he has a memoir called Fire Shut Up In My Bones. I have a copy of it. Um, but that is a memoir that is uh, in large part his story of coming to grips with his own bisexuality. And intriguingly, by the end of it, um, you know, he was, he was, a, he grew up rural, black, in the South, like obviously uh, issues of sexuality were, you know, kind of a tricky thing. Um, by the end of it, he basically states, like he identifies more or less as a bisexual man who is more attracted to women than he is to men. Like he, but he is attracted to both and it's finding that comfort there yeah 
it is entirely possible that you are bisexual and leaning more in one direction or another. There's plenty of examples of that. It is possible that you are fully gay, but, you know, have found spots where, you know, you've enjoyed yourself with women, a la George Michael. You don't know. You're not gonna know until you spend time with this until you do that work. I recommend looking into George Michael, and I recommend reading that memoir by Charles Blow. Again, fire shut up in my bones. Uh, I'll try and link to it in the show notes. But you, you do need to talk to your girlfriend about this. It is okay if you want to take a little bit of space after this happened to figure out a little bit more about yourself. I was going to say real quick, that's that's honestly probably actually my recommendation because everything about your internal sexuality aside, the fact is now there is a, a thing you are questioning that you were not before and maintaining the relationship you've had, uh, unless Harper is incredibly supportive, which they might be, um, you know, it, it, if they're not incredibly supportive, it's very likely that they're going to take this personally or misconstrue emotions in some way. And so I think taking some time, potentially taking a break with Harper and trying to make it clear that you're not doing this at her or to get revenge, but instead to have some self-discovery and it's entirely plausible that that self-discovery puts you right back where you are now only a little more self-assured of yourself yeah that is entirely possible and again like it could be at the end of this you know you find yourself in a kind of closed polyamorous situation um it could be that you pursue this and your best friend is like listen i really loved being with you for that one time but i, I don't think i'm interested in being in an that kind of romantic relationship with you. That is a possibility that your question never entertains, which tells me that, um, and, and this is not me trying to be disrespectful, it's me saying, I think your head's a little in your ass about this. I don't think you're seeing all the pieces of this. And the way that you wrote this, um, I, I don't normally recommend this, but any listeners out there, I'd recommend actually checking the link to the um, tweet here, this is written in a very frantic way. The punctuation's yeah. thrown off. It's very, it, it feels like someone dumping their soul out. I don't think you have the appropriate distance you need to look at this objectively. And I don't think you're going to until you, A, decide to take the time to do so, and B, decide to do that work. Maybe that's with Harper. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's with your best friend. Maybe it's not. But it is okay to discover these things. Hell, we just didn't we just read a headline about like Cal Penn discovering that he was queer, like, and he's like 40, I think, at this point, like, yeah. very close to middle age. It's it, it does happen for some folks, and again, it could be that everything ends up exactly where you started, and you just know a little bit more about yourself, and it could be that it doesn't. You need to do that work, and that work is not going to be done from a f place of fear and fear of loss and fear of change. It's going to be come from a place of emotional vulnerability, clear boundaries, communication, um, and really deep work. 
Yeah. And, you know, we, we wish Joe the best in, in this journey of self-discovery we hope he goes on. We wish Lewis the best. We even wish Harper the best, you know, aside from the critiques of Harper's behavior. Hopefully Harper is incredibly supportive and understanding, and this all works out for the best. We're going to follow up and, you know, recommend all the listeners do, too. The other thing we recommend listeners do on every episode is if you have a relationship question, and it can be a deep interpersonal relationship like this one, or it can be, you know, something in the office workplace, uh, something to do with a pet, any relationship question, or any relationship question that you are not personally involved in but you want our perfectly unqualified advice you can send those into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them absolutely uh you can subscribe to us on apple podcast google podcast stitcher spotify youtube or even tune in radio hey mom um you can also uh fall rate and or I haven't done this in so long. <laughs> you can rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. Um, it, I'm told, actually does help people find the show. Um, <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Send us your questions. Look at our tweets. Interact with us. All that good stuff. All that good stuff. You can find my other show, Cult Fiction, where I watch cult movies with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, which will also be uh, no longer remote recording. Uh, you can find that at Cult Fiction Cast or look up Cult Fiction everywhere you can find this podcast. And if you're so inclined, you can find me, Andy Boel, on Twitter at jovocop2113. That's right. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and, I guess, TikTok and definitely Lychess uh, at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. It's good to be back. It's good to be live. And it's good to end 2021. Amen. As ever, please tell your enemies.